This is Challenge Extended, the adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Challenge Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Challenge Extended provides an opportunity to share personal stories of our nation's adaptive athlete, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. At eight years old, Lex Gillette started losing his eyesight, but his mother encouraged him to maintain his independence, keeping him in public schools and sports. With a natural talent for jumping, he continued to hone his skills as a co-captain on his high school track and field team. At 19 years old, Lex earned his first trip to the Paralympic Games in Athens, where he took home a silver medal. He would go on to compete in three more Paralympics and win three more silver medals. Although he has one gold at the world championship level, he is aiming to win his first Paralympic gold at his fifth games in Tokyo. Lex is a beast on the track, the only totally blind athlete in the world to eclipse the 22-foot barrier in the long jump. But he's also an amazing person off the field. Lex, thank you for being my guest today. Ah, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So how is it in sunny Southern California? It is nice. It is is going good. Just the city is slowly opening up, but I'm I'm kind of staying in my lane and staying in my place. But uh, it's it's going good. Good, good. Yeah, that's how I always think of uh, San Diego and and Southern California. It's got to be sunny all all day, every day. In my in my in my book. Uh, yeah, you know we're dealing with June gloom a little bit right now, but. <laughs> Outside of that, I'm pretty sure it'll return to its normal sunny state here soon. Well, you know, I'm awesome. uh, we're delighted to have you, and, and thanks for, for taking the time to, to chat with us. For folks that just may not know, uh, you know, you or your background, I'd love to just start by asking how you got involved in sports, you know, to begin with. I know um, you, you know, maybe talk about how how – you, you lost your vision, you know, as an early child and maybe just walk folks through some of that early childhood years for you. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was born with sight. I could see up until I was eight years old after, uh, you know what? I went home one day, went through my normal routine that night as I was getting ready for bed, I started noticing that my sight was blurred for no reason at all. My mom and I, we had just thought maybe I had gotten something in my eyes from playing outside earlier that day. So took some water, cleaned my eyes out, didn't clear my sight any. So the next day, went to the doctor after an examination. They said I needed to have an emergency operation because I was suffering from retina detachments. And that led to a string of 10 operations that I had on my eyes when I was eight years old. And after the last one, doctors said that there was nothing else they could do to help my sight. And they said that I would eventually become blind. And, uh, you know, it was it was definitely challenging, as you can imagine. I think those first couple operations, it's like you're very optimistic and hopeful and thinking, that, oh, man, this, this is going to this is going to work. They're going to salvage my sight. And those first couple ones. Each time that I would leave the hospital and go home, after a couple of weeks, I was able to see pretty clearly. But another week or so later, the same issue happened. And my sight would get even blurrier than what it was the time before. And so that 
that just kept me in in and out of the hospital for the entire year that I was eight years old. And so by the time you get to the eighth, ninth, tenth operation, that optimism probably you knows it's not as high anymore because it's, the story has gotten old. And I can totally remember being in the hospital and the nurses trying to trying to hold me down because I was I was trying to get off of the <clears throat> excuse me. I was trying to get off of the uh, the table that that they were using to roll me down the hallway to get to the operating room. And I used to grab the door frame to you know, keep from being rolled out of the uh, out of the room down to the to the to the other room where where the surgery was going to take place. And I just hated it. I hated being put to sleep with the uh, the, the the gas, and uh, it was just it was tough. So I think that after that last last operation, even though the doctors said that that's all we can do, um, even though it was difficult and it's tough to hear that news, it's almost like it's a bit of relief as well because now you're not having to go through that same old, same old. And from that day forward, after the last operation, after the doctor said that, I wouldn't see anymore. It was go home, go through your normal routine, eventually go to sleep at night, wake up the next morning, and you see a little less of what you do the the day before until one day you wake up and you can't make out much of anything. Um, that was crazy. Uh, but I think that somewhere along the way, subconsciously, you're just like, all right, you you feel like it's coming. And with each doctor visit, it's like you're not getting good news and the vocal inflection isn't positive. And, and so it's, it's like, all right, you kind of know it's coming. But when it happens, it's, it's total hits you in the chest, hits you in the mouth. And it's now it's reality. I can't see my mom. I can't see my neighborhood, my friends. Can't see to draw pictures, read and write, watch TV play video games, none of those things anymore. And it was definitely, it was challenging for sure. And there was a lot of sadness and there were, there were tears for sure. But my mom, she's really influential. And so she said that, listen, you're going to be amazing. You're going to do awesome things in the world. You just may not be able to see those things with your eyes. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the thing that lifted the weight off of her shoulders. I know I'm talking a lot right now, but the things that the thing that lifted a weight off of her shoulder is she said that one evening she was inside the living room and she was like praying or meditating. And she says that I ran up to her and I tapped her. I said, mom, 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 I need to learn how to read dots and translation. I need to learn how to read Braille. And so for her, she said that was the that was the confirmation that she needed because I had let her know that, hey, I totally understand that this is this is life moving forward. And so from that day, she found every resource, every program, tool, piece of technology, every uh, educator, whoever or whatever would help me be independent and contribute to society like the next person. My mom just wanted me to go to, to school, get an education, learn how to live on my own, take care of myself, make money, and, and 
you know, be able to live a productive life. So, yeah, so that moment was basically the, the, the moment of acceptance and realization that, that this is this is me, this is my new norm, this is how I move on, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you had what, what maybe a year, you know, between, the, you know, ultimately losing sight. Was it was it about a year's time frame? Yeah, yeah, I would say that definitely. So, um, very much a, a slow, gradual type of type of ordeal. As an eight-year-old, how how do you come to terms with that? How do you how do you you know, how did you, you know, adapt or prepare, you know, for, for something like that? I think that it is, I just had a lot of great people and a lot of great examples that were you know, consistent examples and consistent interaction with people who poured into me and, and were always saying, Hey, there's, there's ways around this. We can get this done. We can adapt this. We can adapt that. We can change this. We can change that so that you can participate. You can, you can be included in, you know, in the classroom setting. You can be included in sports or recreation. And, and there, was, there was definitely a, we're going to figure out a way, no matter the circumstances, type, type mindset with my mom, with the educators. And even if I, I continued to go to public school. My mom felt like that was more of a real world experience for me to be alongside my side of peers and participate and, and learn alongside them. Um, but she was very much involved in, in that school setting in the sense of um, at the beginning of the year, she would have conversations with all of my teachers and let them know this is these are the expectations that I have for my son. These are the things that I expect from him at home. And when he leaves home and goes to school, it should be the same. It needs to be consistent. So my teachers, they didn't cut any slack. They didn't cut any slack. <laughs> like, thanks, all. mom. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I was, man, I, I couldn't get away from it. But ultimately, <laughs> you look back on it and it's like, all right, that was the best thing for me. And and where did where did sports fit into your life, either before um, that prognosis or, you know, and obviously after that prognosis? Yeah, before I lost my sight, I, I played rec league baseball and I used to, uh, you know, my mom, she, she, we went to like the local community center. I learned how to swim and I would play the typical backyard sports, dodgeball, kickball. Um, my mom's side of the family is the athletic side. So they played it all from basketball to softball, baseball, volleyball, you name it. They, they probably played it. And, and so after I lost my sight, I, I certainly had to get comfortable with the transition from being able to see to not being able to see. Um, but the, the athletic piece was all always within me. It was just a matter of gaining the confidence and trust to be able to get out there and, and try some new things. So I didn't find out about track and field until high school. But leading up to that, I used to my freshman year of high school, I wrestled fre uh, freshman and sophomore year of high school. I wrestled um, even in, in middle school. I was on my track team and uh, I was throwing shot put. So I was probably, I don't know, five, five maybe a hundred pounds, probably 90 <laughs> some pounds out there trying to toss this 
this huge ball and and I was literally just out there for you know the camaraderie being a part of a team feeling included that those were the things that I was getting at that time you know I wasn't coming in last place but I most certainly was coming in first um and once I let me see what else oh, I learned about goalball as well phenomenal sport I learned about beat baseball which is an adaptive form of of uh, you know softball, baseball, yep, yep. and uh, and eventually, I found out about Paralympics and the long jump in high school. So I had a teacher named Brian Whitman, and he had noticed that I was really good at jumping. We had a physical fitness test in high school that everyone had to participate in. I was the best jumper in my freshman class, and one of the best in in the entire school. And mind you, we had about 1500 kids and I'm one of maybe five or 10 visually impaired kids who attend the school and everyone else can see. So naturally everyone's like, oh my gosh, oh, oh this blind kid is like jumping to the moon. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Coach Whitmer, he's like, man, you know, have you ever heard of the Paralympics? And you could represent Team USA and, and break records and win medals and things like that. And that sounded pretty exciting. Um, but I quickly learned that in Paralympics, they don't have standing long jump, they have running long jump. And so that's where the monkey wrench had got thrown in. And I said, well, how in the world are we going to do this? And he said, well, in long jump, you have a long stretch of track and you have a takeoff board and you're gonna run jump from that board and land into a huge sand pit. And uh, <laughs> I said, wait, what? He said, yeah, you're going to run and you're going to jump into a huge sand pit. I said, you, you remember I'm blind, right? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, I'm totally aware of that. I'm going to stand at the takeoff board. I'm going to clap and yell straight, 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 straight. So you'll have a sense of what direction to run. I want you to run as straight as possible, as fast as possible to the sound of my voice. And at the appropriate stride, I want you to jump and uh, and land in the sand. So it, it was, it, you know, as you can imagine, in the beginning, it was it was very tough. Um, but he was patient, and he was he reinforced that that vision, and and uh, he believed in me so much that I began to believe in myself. Yeah, so it was just really just a matter of it being a learning learning curve like anything else, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that was the difference was in high school, it's, it's standing long jump, but then obviously in the sport that you're in, it's running long jump. That's that's the difference? Yeah, well, you know, in, in high school, they, they also have, I mean, on the track team, which I ended up joining, it was running long jump. But for that test specifically, it was standing long jump. Um, and I just, you know, since that was my first – interaction with it i just assumed that oh okay this is what everyone does but you know i had a rude awakening so you know and it's awesome that you said you know, coach whitaker um even knew about the paralympics so that's you know that's a, a good thing when when uh when more exposure to the paralympic movement and adaptive sports in general and and so that's that's you know awesome that that he even knew about the paralympics yeah i mean i have a lot of friends who they you know, they don't hear about it until later on in life. So for Coach Whitmer to be exposed to those things and, and be knowledgeable, um, you know, I was I was just a beneficiary of, of you know, him being educated and, and being a part of that that community and that that knowledge. Um, 
I mean, I was able to go to my first Paralympics when I was, I was literally had just left high school. Um, so a year after high school. So was it at that moment when, when Coach Whitmore introduced the sport or the idea of the Paralympics to you that you said, yes, I want to do it? Or did it, was it more of a gradual move in that direction? It was a gradual move. What really took me over the, what really did it for me is I went to a sports education camp in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and it was hosted by the United States Association of Blind Athletes. And there you you would choose different events throughout the week that you would try out. At the end of the week, you would participate or compete in those events against everyone else who had chosen those events. So I, I, I wanted to choose standing long jump because that was an option. There was standing long jump or running long jump. I wanted to choose standing long jump. Mr. Whitmer said, nah, we're going to do running. <laughs> we're going to do running long jump. And I said, man, all right, well, uh, and we worked on it throughout the week. And at the end of the week, when it came time for competition, there was this guy who had been attending this camp for, I don't know how many years. And he was like the Michael Jordan of, of the camp and of this, this, this long jump. And um, I ended up knocking them off. And after that, I, I love to compete. I love to win. And so after that happened, I said, man, you know what? I might have something here. So we went back to North Carolina. That's when I made the decision to join my high school track team. And so for my junior and senior year, I was on the uh, Athens Drive Jaguars track and field team. That's awesome. You know, I think most folks don't know what it takes to, to be an, an elite athlete today. Can you can you shed some insights on, you know, on, on what that means for you? Yeah, it takes a, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of dedication. So first and foremost, you have to set aside that time to, to even devote to the sport. And I train Monday through Friday, depending on the day, kind of you know, dictates how many hours I train. So Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays are more of the important days, the technical days, working on the technique, working on speed, speed endurance, speed, um, uh, 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 power, strength. Um, and then Wednesdays and Fridays are more of you're working on drills, doing um, plyometrics, uh, what else, working on stretching, and, and really just trying to make sure that you're the maintenance piece of the training is, is being taken care of. And Saturday is more of an active recovery type situation. So you can go for a run, you can do some some light training, but there's no, it's not a structured situation. Unless it's in the beginning of the season, we do go from Monday through Saturday most times. But um, once we build that strong foundation, that strong base, then we move to more of a Monday through Friday. Because a lot of times, that weekends on Saturday specifically, you'll have competition and then Sundays is typically off. So it's a lot of, a lot of working out, a lot of sweating, a lot of lifting weights. You have to eat properly, making sure that you're feel, fueling your body appropriately, mm -hmm. um, getting the, the right amount of sleep and rest and recovery. So yeah, I mean, anything that you want to be great in, you, you certainly have to put a lot of time and, uh, and energy into it. You got to be serious about it. 
Yeah, definitely. It's a lot of dedication, a lot of grit, a lot of glory. <laughs> yes. A lot of grind. <laughs> All of that. Absolutely. Besides the physical and, and, you know, mental component of being an elite athlete, I know a lot of folks don't even think about, you know, like the financial side and that sponsorships, for example, particularly, you know, at the Paralympic level is important. I know you've had a relationship with the Hartford, you know, talk about what that means to you as an athlete and then maybe even talk about what it might mean for them. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hartford is, uh, oh, can't even talk, the Hartford is, is absolutely amazing. I've been fortunate enough to to have worked with them for a while now. And to have that relationship, to be connected with the company who believes in you, not only as an athlete, but as a human being, and who believes in your abilities. And, and they are, I mean, it's just a wonderful partner, a wonderful company and and at the core of it all i think that um to have someone who again they just they understand they are supportive and at the end of the day i mean it's, it's a team effort having that support from from a company that's what helps us be able to get equipment to to purchase uh you know, items like 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 for recovery, massage or chiropractor services, or when we travel overseas, you need to buy airplane tickets, you need to buy food and hotels and things like that. Um, so yeah, for them to be able to support is huge. And and at the end of the day, again, it's, it, it takes a village. So mm-hmm. you know that that you can't do it alone. And and quite frankly, I mean. You, just, you don't have to do it alone. Anything significant involves others. Yeah, and they've been very supportive of, you know, the Paralympic movement and adaptive sports in general. So I, I yes, appreciate you talking, talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know in in, uh, in uh, Rio, you were a silver medalist in 2016. Yeah. And uh, you were, you know, you won the gold at last year's world championship. Uh, assuming we do have a Tokyo Paralympic Games. Right. And hopefully we will. Uh, what are your What are your expectations going into uh, next year's uh, competition? Oh, well, you know I'm going for the goal. Always, <laughs> always going for the goal. I knew you'd I say think. that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think at this time, you know, everything has been pushed back, and, and hopefully, Tokyo will happen. I know there's a lot going on in the world right now, but the the good thing is that we have time. And, um, you know, hopefully over these next few months, things will start to trend in a more favorable direction across all fronts. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to go into next year and into the games ready to compete, ready to, uh, you know, first and foremost, go into the game safely. Because um, certainly don't want anybody to be at risk of, of uh, getting sick and um, yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm excited. It was definitely a a blow to get the news that it was going to be postponed. But at the end of the day, it's a postponing and not a cancellation. So you can find solace in knowing that there still is a games right now. So just take the necessary steps to work on things that you need to work on. Maybe there's some areas that that you could, uh, you know, from a um, like a recovery standpoint, maybe you have some injuries or something. Now you have additional time to get that right 
And uh, there, there's so many positives that you can pull from it. And, you know, one of the things that really caught my eye that you, you've talked about before is, you know, that the, the, the tether as a metaphor. Yeah. And first, you know, maybe for those uh, that are listening that don't know what a, a, a tether is in the context of your sport, maybe talk a little bit about that. But then more importantly, I'd love for you to, you know, your thoughts on how that correlates beyond sport. Yeah, so in Paralympic sport, we have a tether, and I'm not sure of the length exactly, but if I had to guess, it's probably about it's about six inches long, I would I'd, say. I'd guess, I but, would guess that too, but not knowing yeah. for sure. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. And, and they, so the interesting thing is that when I first started, you could, you could choose your own tether. So we would make them up. I mean, it, it could be shoelaces, it could be lanyards. And, yeah. and the biggest thing was just making sure that you had a loop at either end so that you, the athlete, could put a couple, one or two fingers in in the loop. And then your guy could put one or two fingers on the opposite side in that loop. And so that would connect you. Now they have a standard tether across the board that you get during competition. And, um, and it's nice. It's, it's a nice little... little uh, situation that they pieced together, put together, created. Um, and so when you are running, the idea is that you want to be in sync. So just imagine yourself and you're, if you're in the middle of the race, if you have two athletes and let's just say you're on the left-hand side and your guide is on the right-hand side, if your right arm is forward as the athlete, then your guy's left arm is going to be forward. And you're going to make sure that, similar to a three-legged race, you want to make sure that you are in sync, that you're fluid, that you are just totally in sync so that you can have a smooth race. And that's really critical because if you're running something like the 100 meters where every thousandth of a second counts, you want to make sure there's no jockeying for position, no jostling, no jostling and tussling and bumping and banging. Um, you just want a smooth race, and and uh, that tether helps to ensure that the athlete knows where he or she is, and um, you know, it gives the guide the ability to kind of you know control the uh, you know the direction of where the athlete is, is running as well. Um, so. That's how it looks in the literal uh, the sprint. But when you're in the long jump, you're not allowed to use that physical tether. However, you're still tethered because as, as the athlete, now you're, you have your guide, you're listening to them yell and clap. So you wanna be tethering your ear to the sound that is 100 plus feet away from you. And so I wrote this article a while back speaking on on tethers and the importance of connection. And, you know, from an athletic standpoint, you know, the, the tether is huge. And so you can imagine, I've been in a race before where the tether has broken. And once that happened, it was your loss. You don't, you don't know exactly where you are and it can create discomfort. It can, it can cause you to lose confidence and lose focus. And it's similar to and when we go into life and, uh, and and we become broken and disconnected from each other, it creates fear. You're not able to focus the way you need to. 
you're not even able to, you just don't feel it. Um, so always ensuring that we're tethered together is, is going to make sure that it, it supports growth and development and, and confidence and, um, and focus and, and just that, that ability to really go out, go out there and, um, you know, really make it happen. So always, always stay tethered together. Yeah, I love that tethered together concept, you know, particularly in this day and age, <laughs> we, yeah. we could be talking about, you know, needing to be more tethered together. And, yeah. and it's like that song, you know, will, will the circle be unbroken? But you know, you don't want to be, yeah. you, know, you don't want the you yeah. don't want the tethered to be, uh, to be broken or, or lost or yeah. definitely not. Yeah. You know, speaking of just this day and age, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of conversations about marginalization and isolation, you know, how, how has that impacted your life or are there moments where you've had to overcome that, you know, early on in your, you know, as a child or, or going yeah. through school or, or even, you know, present day? Yeah. Yeah. I think that growing up in North Carolina, of course, like there's no way that you can not have a conversation surrounding racism and, you know, for everyone listening, I'm, I'm black and uh, you couldn't, you couldn't tell, but um, I, uh, there was no way you could have not have a conversation surrounding racism. And so my mom, she definitely told me about it. Um, but I, I feel like it was never discussed to the frequency that would lead to like it being front and center and, and always at the front of my mind. Um, my mom was like, listen, I want you to go into the world and, be your absolute best and do everything in your power to be a great human being. But just know that this is the reality and you could be subject to, um, you could be subject to some sort of negative activity or negative actions just because you're black. Um, and, um, you know, and it's, it's like, so, weird to to hear that because it's like wow i mean <laughs> wow okay um and then you fast forward to uh, of course growing up in school you you read about history and you, you read about civil rights and, and slavery and all of the things that have the the oppression against you know black people and people of color over the years but um over the past few years man i just feel like it's it's been more it's just in your face and then and especially with the George Floyd situation that was absolutely that that was insane that was absurd that was that was just crazy and um to to realize that this is 2020 and these things are still present present and evident in the in in our country mm-hmm. is um it's like wow uh, i mean we we gotta we have some major work to do because people are losing their lives and, and even from a, a systemic standpoint um you know things are just 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 there like obstacles and barriers are there for us that you know that aren't there for for other people and so i think that um you know, right now, I think that conversations are being had, but the biggest thing is, you know, acknowledging the fact that it's an issue, it's a problem, 
that that needs to change. Let's have conversations surrounding it, being open, being transparent, knowing that sometimes it might get dicey. It might be uncomfortable to talk about some of these things, but we have to talk about it so that we can come to a, a space where we can we can come to a solution, come to a solution, um, come up with some actions and a plan so that we can break down um, you know, some of some of this uh, some of these these issues and, and, and obstacles that that are are in our path for no reason. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we can continue to you know be open and honest and and you know and, and saying all of those things I have a lot of friends who are just all over the board in terms of race and I totally understand that you know all as it relates to the current issues of of, of white and black um, or white and people of color I don't believe that everyone who is white is is racist um, but you know given the actions of, of history and what we've seen recently the past years in the past month or so there are people out there who do mm -hmm. um and and we gotta we gotta stop that did you have you ever felt i mean you know since you mentioned that you were you know, obviously black and and yeah. um and for those that didn't know but but black and having a disability did you ever feel like there was, that was almost like a double whammy at all for you uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, <laughs> I'll check two boxes, right? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I can think of maybe a couple times that I was um, wronged as it relates to me being black. I can, I can give you way more examples of, um, of like in, injustices, if you will, or discrimination, mistreatment as it relates to me as a, as a blind person. Yeah. And and I think also the other thing to think about, too, is the reality is I am blind. So who's to say that maybe there there weren't more times that that I was treated differently because I was black and maybe I just didn't know it because I, I can't see people's actions, their demeanor, how they, you know, right. how they might look at me a certain way. So uh, who knows? It could have been could have been much more. I, I know that there's. Um... I know in, in our space, there's a little bit of um, kind of back and forth on terminology and, you know, quote unquote labels, you know, if you will. But, you know, with, with, in terms of VI, like visual impaired, blind, low vision, you know, where do you where do you feel comfortable in, in talking about or describing, you know, kind of that that um, loss of vision, if you will? Um, blind, visually impaired, low vision. All of those things are pretty, if someone were to classify me as, oh, well, you know, he's a person who's blind or he's a person who's low vision, that, those things don't really, they don't bother me. I think that, um, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I think it is good to, if you don't know, then you know, ask, ask a question. Look, mm -hmm. is, is it okay for me to say this um, and, you know, get people's perspective because some people may not like that. And, uh, and yeah. Yeah. And that's, I know that's why labels aren't, aren't, uh, seen in the, in the best light, if you will, because of, because, you know, I think it is very individualistic and, and it yeah. shouldn't be put on, you know, on, on a, a group of people or anything. Right. 
I, I love the mantra that is central to your outlook on life, you know, which is, you know, there's no need for sight when you have a vision. What do you, what do you mean by that? Sight is, it's not the sole only determining factor that decides success. It's our ability to, to see a vision, to see things before they exist and to be able to come up with the steps and a plan to be able to bring that into fruition. And, and the other cool thing about a vision is that if it's real, if it's authentic, if it's genuine, then, then you know that it doesn't involve one person. It involves many and it is, it is there to impact many, 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 many people in this country and, and on this globe. Um, and, you know, looking at my situation personally, uh, you know, I have so many individuals who are in my vision, they're in my, my, my space, you know, on a daily basis. And some of them you know, may not necessarily be here physically, yet they still play a huge role in me bringing everything that I see into, into reality. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just feel like that is a power that's available to all of us. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you can, you can see and, and, and go as far as you can, uh, you can go as far as you can see. I know, I know, Lex, you've done some motivational speaking, but you've also written a book. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that uh, process. I did, yeah. I wrote a book. It's entitled Fly, and it's, uh, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, a lot of the major stores. It's on my website, too, as well. And um, it was a fun process. I think that I certainly want to do, I want to write multiple books, but the first one was really just trying to get my feet wet, and it was a or it is a, just an outlook and overview of all of the people who have helped me get to this point and almost like a give people their roses while they can smell them type of situation. <laughs> I've had my mom, my grandmother, my godfather, my, my coach in high school, my guy currently, Wesley Williams. And so many people have impacted my life and, yeah, the athletic piece is huge, and it's something that I, I most certainly enjoy. I love to compete and represent Team USA, but I also believe that everything that happened for me at a young age, at the the home environment and going through school and and all of the uh, you know the resources and things that were available to me, I wanted to really talk about those things and let people know that that's that's really where it all happens at the end of the day like going and winning medals and being on the podium and stuff like that. I'm very appreciative of that. I love it. But uh, the reality is some people may not, as it relates to me getting on stage and speaking, some people may not relate to that because they're like, oh man, well, I'm never going to be an athlete. But where we all can relate is, is the, the emotions and the feelings linked to that type of achievement and the type of dedication and the, the skill set and the uh, the elements that you need to produce those types of huge achievements, those are the areas where we can relate. And so that's what I really wanted to to um, articulate in the book because I want the reader to be able to step away and say, "All right, I can apply this to my own life and be able to win a gold medal in the area of life that means the most to me." 
Yeah. And just like, you know, writing, which uses a, a particular side of your brain, you're also a musician, right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So talk about, um, that, talk about that side of your life and how does it, how does it fit in with who, you know, who you are? Yeah. So the music aspect, when I was a very young child, I remember Christmas morning waking up, I had a keyboard under the tree and I used to play around with it when I was when I was super young. But after I lost my sight, I had stepped away from it because I just felt like that's what people expected me to do. This, oh man, like Ray Charles played the piano and Stevie Wonder plays. You blind, <laughs> you can do it too. And I'm like, ah, that's not really, that's not really high expectations. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're phenomenal. And uh, but I don't know. I was just trying to figure out life and you know figure out myself and. Um, eventually I did get back into it when I was in college and at the end of the day, music is whenever I get away from the track, that's the perfect way to decompress and get away from the world and, you know, to, to be able just to listen to music or to get on the piano or to write lyrics is huge because one of the other things too, when I was growing up, um, I just felt like a lot of people didn't really listen to me now of course my mom and, and people in my in my corner you know, of course they're going to listen to me but um i just felt like my voice a lot of times would get drowned out by so many other voices and music was always a way for me to to communicate my feelings and emotions in a way that everybody listens to music mm-hmm. everybody so i knew that if, if i could if i could get how I felt and, and uh, you know, the emotions and my thoughts and ideas and the music. I said, oh, well, somebody's gonna listen to me, uh, you know, eventually, because, because of that simple fact, I mean, music and sport are the two just most amazing languages in the world. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter literally what language you speak, what back, what's your background, where you're from, none of that stuff. Um, you can come to the table and enjoy it. Yeah, that's that's an awesome point to end on. I know, I know we're running low on time. One of the things I wanted to, to share with the audience is, I love your insights on social, you know, and and some of your blog pieces. As as I mentioned earlier, you know, if folks want to follow you, Lex, on social. What are what are the platforms you're on, and and how do they how do they find you? Yes, sir. I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Vimeo, YouTube. Everything is is Lex Gillette. L-E-X-G-I-L-L-E-T-T-E and my website is LexGillette.com. So yeah, follow me on social, send me a, a note. I'm, I'm pretty responsive. So um, yeah. All right, Lex, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>